Father, we are grateful for the day. God, we're grateful for another opportunity to gather together for worship. God, we're grateful that uh, you are our unchanging God. Lord, that you are the same today as you were yesterday, that you will be the same tomorrow, uh, and in the coming week that you have planned for us. So, Father, Lord, we rest in the truth today that your perfections will never change. Lord, that your love truly is steadfast. Lord, that your promises really are sure, that you really are faithful. And so, Father, this morning we rejoice in your unchanging goodness today. But, Father, we also are thankful for your word, your word which will never fade away. Lord, we're thankful to have it. We're thankful to find in it the words of eternal life. We're thankful that we can look at it and see your son, who's the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature, as Hebrews says. So, Lord, we pray this morning that as we go to your scriptures, Lord, that you would turn our minds and ultimately our hearts to you. That by so doing, Lord, you enhance our love for you and for others, God. And of course, we want to pray for John Bear. God, we ask, Lord, that you would heal him, that you'd uh, comfort him. I pray that you would encourage Nancy and, and uh, his family there. I pray that you bless the doctors with wisdom and precision and skill as they treat him. And I pray, Lord, that he's all right and able to get back to Rochester very, very soon. Father, Lord, we look forward to the morning you have for us. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite your attention to Luke 22 today. We're going to continue in our series through Luke's gospel, of course. And we're coming down to the final chapters of Luke, uh, which means we're in the midst of the final few hours of Jesus's life. Okay. Uh, This is right before, of course, he's going to be arrested in the garden, put on trial and crucified. But before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus is going to spend Uh, one more important and special evening with his disciples. And in their time together, what we're going to see this morning is Jesus, he's going to take one of the most important celebrations for the nation of Israel, and he's going to use it to preach the gospel. And he's going to then establish it as a practice for the church to observe ever since that evening. So this, this morning, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper or communion, okay? And as we're going to see, it's an incredibly important part of the Christian life within the context of the Christian community. Um, and, and it's really important for every church to talk about this and teach on this, obviously practice it, but certainly to teach on it because, because like baptism, Uh, Various denominations that exist hold to very different views on this, how they practice it and what the meaning is. Um, So like, for example, when I was really young, probably like six years old, I have this faint memory of of going to a Catholic mass with a friend of mine. Obviously, it was the first time I'd ever gone to anything like this. Um, And I honestly, I don't remember a lot of it. I just remember going up to the front and kneeling and, you know, getting the the bread and drinking the cup. And obviously, I had no idea what was going on. I just walked up to the front because my buddy did and everybody else was doing that. After that, I remember going back to my seat and I fell asleep during the priest talk. And I remember my friend's mom waking me up because it was time to go. I mean, that's all I remember of that experience. Other than that, I grew up in Baptist churches. Okay, so that's a a very different experience when it comes to communion and the Lord's Supper. Uh, So in in our church, every so often we'd have this special service. 
And our deacons would uh, carry these golden round trays. And if you grew up in church, you probably can envision these round golden trays. And some of them had the little cups in them and these little slots. And the other one had like the little crackers in it. And the deacons would actually take that and walk down the aisle. And then we would pass it down the aisle, take a cup, take a cracker. Obviously, this is pre-COVID, so we could do those kind of things. Um, And and I just remember as a kid, I was scared to death to drop that tray uh, of cup, of the cup, because like you don't want to be the kid who spills Jesus's blood, right? Like you don't want to be that guy. And, and, And so all those were, of course, two very different experiences. And, and it's not only in the way it was observed practically, but also in the way it was viewed theologically, right? Like one saw the bread and juice as literally the blood and body of Jesus being re-sacrificed on the altar. The other saw it as symbolic. Not literally the body and blood of Jesus, but, but something that was to be observed as a memorial. Okay, now all of that to say, depending on your past experience or your church background, you may have a certain idea about the Lord's Supper or communion, we might call it. But like with all things, we want to make sure our understanding and practices are biblical. Okay, and so because this is such an important part of life in the local church, it's important we talk about that, and our passage this morning allows us to do that. Okay, so Luke chapter 22 is where we are. Uh, We're going to pick it up in verse 7, okay? Verse 7. Luke writes for us, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, And prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay, now, the historical, cultural context of this passage is that of the Passover. And this is crucial to understanding what the Lord's Supper is all about. Okay, and so the Passover, if you didn't know, is one of seven annual feasts that that, that God instituted or established for his people to observe. So we have the Passover, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, those coincided with, with one another. That's why it's mentioned there at the same time there in Luke 22. There's the, the, the Feast of the First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And you can read all about those uh, in Leviticus 23, later in Deuteronomy 16. Uh, but, but each of these feasts were established by God for his people to commemorate various things. They were given to the people in order for them to remember who God was and what he had done in their midst, right? That he was merciful and that he was faithful. And so each of them kind of invoked various emotions. Sometimes it was mourning over sin. Sometimes it was just joy for God's goodness uh, to them. But, but the point is that each one of them centered around food, centered around the table. 
The table was an important place for God's people. It, it was that place where, where God's people would gather together to, to draw close to the Lord, to, to confess, confess sin and rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness together. And, and, and the point is together, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, that this wasn't an individual experience. This was a, a corporate experience for the people of God. Uh, in fact, we can hear the importance of the table from probably the most uh, famous psalm, Psalm 23, uh, when David, remember, talks about the Lord being his shepherd, that, that he'll never go without. And this is what he says in verse 5 and 6. He says, you, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here's David, this once shepherd, now king. He's saying, you know, I I might be in the presence of my enemies. Life doesn't look exactly easy all the time, but I'm not overwhelmed and I'm not terrified because I'm comforted by this shepherd. And and the imagery here is that he set a table before me. There's a feast here uh, in his midst for him to remember God's faithfulness to him. Right? And so feasts and festivals, these were incredibly important to the people of Israel. And the Passover was probably the most significant. And it was the most significant because it commemorated the most significant event in Israel's history, the Exodus. Okay, and if you remember the story of Exodus, you can find it in the book of Exodus. Good job. Okay. In the book of Exodus, talks about the Exodus. And if you don't remember this story, this is the part of, of Israel's history where, where they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, they've been in bondage. And eventually, God sends Moses and Aaron to deliver them, right? So Moses and Aaron, they go to confront Pharaoh, who's the leader of, of Egypt, to let his people go. If you remember this story, and Pharaoh doesn't want that to happen. So he keeps saying no, and he keeps saying no. And so God sends 10 plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh as an act of judgment to show his power. You can read all about this in Exodus 7 and on, but but he sends plagues like frogs and locusts, and he turns the Nile into blood and and some various other plagues. Uh, But it was the final plague, the 10th plague, which was the most severe. That final plague would be the death of all the firstborn in the land. But before that night of the 10th plague, God gives specific instructions to his people, to Israel, that each one of them, each home was to, to kill this lamb and then spread the blood of the lamb around the door of each home. And that might be the familiar part uh, to you of most people of the story of, of this idea of spreading blood around the doorpost, incredibly important. But they were also told to eat the lamb that they killed. In fact, there was really specific instructions on what they were supposed to do. Specific instructions on how to cook it. That they were to destroy the leftovers the next morning. There were, like there were no to-go boxes for, for this meal. And they were to eat, the, the text says, with, with their belts fastened, sandals on, staff in hand. And of course, that was to, to keep it fresh in their mind. Like God's about to deliver you. You're about to leave. And then sure enough, in the story, we know God brings judgment on Egypt, just like he said he would. But according to his promise, faithful to his promise, when he came to the homes of the the Israelites who spread the blood of the lamb on the door, God passes over their home. 
That's why we call it the Passover. The people in that home escaped judgment all because of the sacrifice of the lamb. And of course, from there, God takes his people out of Egypt, takes them out of slavery, makes them his own people, and eventually takes them to the promised land. Okay, so to remember this incredible event in their history, they celebrated it every year. God wanted them to celebrate it annually in the form of this feast, this Passover. And it became this huge celebration for the people of Israel, as we could imagine. Each year, them gathering and celebrating God's rescuing of their nation from slavery. They would sacrifice lambs and they'd have this meal together to remember God's goodness and provision for them. And so the Passover meal is the context of this passage in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. And it's so important to understand. So here's Jesus. He sends Peter and John ahead and some of his closest disciples to, to make the preparations to observe this meal, to have this celebration together where this lamb would die, where they would enjoy the meal together to remember God's faithful, gracious, rescuing work of his people. Look, look what happens in verse 14. Luke says, and when the hour came, so time's come for the meal, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So notice again that really important phrase there at the end, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And that should give us some clues about some things. This this tells us that this Passover meal or that Passover event specifically pointed to something else. In other words, this meal was not merely a celebration of what has happened in the past, but it points to something that will happen in the future. That it was a shadow of something that was to come. That there was something uh, that it pointed to that was waiting to be fulfilled. And so you can imagine the disciples, Peter and John, being sent ahead to make the preparations. Like, they knew how important the meal was. I mean, this is an important part of the life of the people of, of Israel. So they, they understood this is an important celebration. This is going to be an important meal. And yet they don't fully understand everything that it pointed to yet. But Jesus is about to let them know. Look at verse 17. It says, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. And of course, last week we talked about Judas being that one, right? So, so here's Jesus and his disciples. They're all at the table. They're ready to eat this Passover meal to celebrate everything that God did for the nation of Israel and protecting them, providing for them, setting them free from slavery. And then Jesus goes and does something absolutely incredible. He, he takes the bread And he takes the wine and he enhances the meaning of the entire celebration. And he's communicating to them and teaching them 
that no longer is this about God saving Israel from slavery in Egypt. No longer is this all about just the shed blood of the sacrificial lambs. Now this meal, now this celebration, what we do at the table together, is all about what God is doing through the body and shed blood of his only son for his people. Like, we have to understand this because it's huge in understanding the Lord's Supper. That through this act at the Passover meal, Jesus is saying that everything that happened in the Exodus, that yearly celebration of the Passover, all of that is pointing to me. He's saying that I'm the true and better sacrificial lamb. The one who's come to, to die to save his people from God's judgment. He's saying that first Passover, again, is actually about him. He's the true lamb that was sacrificed to provide his people a true and better exodus. This exodus out of slavery, of sin, uh, this coming judgment and death. In fact, Paul points this out when, when he writes on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 5 specifically. Listen to, to, to the reasoning he gives as why God's people can walk away from the slavery of sin. Listen, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that's a symbol of sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, this real slavery we had to sin, we are now set free from it because the true and better lamb has been sacrificed. We found new life, a new exodus. In Christ. And he says, this is to fulfill the new covenant in my blood. Very important. He's referring to this covenant or this promise that God made to his people. Back in the Old Testament, you read about in Jeremiah, where he says, I'm making this promise to you that, that's this new covenant where I'm going to forgive all the sins of my people and take them to be my people. And Jesus says, you remember that covenant that, that God made, this new covenant? Well, it's about to be sealed and it's going to be sealed in my blood. He's saying you're going to be a part of God's people and you're going to find complete and total forgiveness of sin. And it's not because of some lambs or some bulls, but when the true Passover lamb has been sacrificed, which this meal symbolizes. And then Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And here is that instruction to the disciples and to the church after that to say, listen, you should do this regularly. You need a physical reminder of my death and everything that it accomplished for you. You need this. And so this is why we celebrate it. This is why we observe it, why the church does it. And, and again, it's just so important for us because we're a very forgetful people. Like how easy is it for us to forget who God is? How easy is it for us to forget who we are? How easy is it for us to forget what God's done for us and Jesus, I mean, how easy is it for us to sing the praises of God on Sunday only for, to forget his goodness on Monday? I mean, this is normal for us. We're just forgetful. And God knows that. In his grace and in his patience for us and in our feebleness, he, in his, again, in his grace, helps us remember, and the way he helps us to remember partly is to establish this new feast for his people. 
God established all those feasts for Israel because they were prone to forget. They were prone to forget who they were and who God was and and how God had, had provided for them and taken care of them. And God establishes this new feast for us because we're just as prone to forget too. And so observing the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the gospel. We need this reminder. It tells us the story of our redemption. The great length that God's gone through to provide it for us. So when we eat the bread, we're reminded of his body that endured beatings and torture and ultimately crucifixion because of our sin. When we drink the juice, we're reminded that it's only by the shedding of blood that we have forgiveness. And Jesus' blood accomplishes just that for us. We need these reminders because we forget what God has done. But Paul also says it also points to something in the future. Not only is it a reminder of Jesus' sacrificial death in the past, it's a reminder that Christ will come again in the future. In fact, listen to what he says to the church in Corinth again. This is in chapter 11, verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's an aspect of this celebration to say, uh, we're celebrating this now together, um, but there's a day we'll celebrate it when Christ returns with him. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper, again, we're reminded of the death of Christ, but that death is a victorious death. We preach Christ crucified, and we do that as a celebration because that means he's also going to return, and he's going to reign, and he's going to make all things new. And so when we do this, it should humble us, certainly, the thought of Jesus' death for us, but it should also encourage us. That there really is an eternal, glorious future for God's people with God for all eternity. I mean, just like how God rescued Israel from Egypt. Again, he protected them. He provided for them. He ultimately delivered them to a new land for their enjoyment. We too have this promise. In the future, God's not only rescued us, but he's promised us life in a future place where we will enjoy God forever. And this promise is sure because it's sealed by the blood of Jesus himself. And so this is what we celebrate when we observe communion. We're saying, this is what God did for Israel in the Passover, and that's an incredible, amazing, miraculous event. And yet it pales in comparison to what he's done for us in Jesus. And we need this reminder over and over and over again. Now, due to various religious and church backgrounds, probably in our church, whenever uh, we teach on the Lord's Supper, there's probably some, uh, a few things that need to be clarified about the Lord's Supper. There'll probably be good questions that come up about communion that, that's just good to answer. And so let me just do that, a few of those questions this morning. I think, first of all, the question is, well, who's it for? Right? Like, who takes part in communion? Who observes it? Well, we believe because it symbolizes our taking part in the death of Jesus, it's only for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. For those who are born again through their faith in Jesus, the ones who have applied uh, the blood of the Lamb to their life. And further, Scripture teaches that it should be a corporate experience as much as possible. Right? Like the Lord's Supper, it's a family meal. And so we wouldn't encourage you to observe the Lord's Supper as, as a family or, or individually as a private experience because it removes it from the context of celebration. 
in the church body. In fact, listen to what Paul teaches about this to the church in Corinth. In chapter 10, he says this in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And the theological um, um, foundation that, that's driving Paul here, he's saying that the Lord's Supper, when we observe communion, is this opportunity for many to come and be one. In fact, later would, Paul would say this in, in chapter 11, verse 33. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Why would we need to wait for one another? Well, because... When we're together, that's the proper context of observing the Lord's Supper. So like, for example, um, have you ever, while we're singing at church, right? We're, we're singing our songs. We sang two this morning. We'll sing another two uh, after the sermon as we typically do. Have you ever, when we're singing, like accidentally started singing the next verse before you're supposed to? Yeah, like I have for sure. But you know that experience, like you're just so confident, you're just so wrapped up in worship and you just start singing and then you catch yourself like because it ain't time yet. Um, Like I I know it's happened to you, okay? It's happened to me. Why does that feel weird? Well, it's embarrassing, right? You might not think anybody heard you, but we heard you, okay? (laughs) But it's because you're singing out of place with the rest of the body. What's supposed to be this corporate worship experience has now accidentally become this individual experience. And it's not the perfect analogy, but, but we might view observing the Lord's Supper away from the corporate gathering kind of in the same way. It's just out of place. We're called to celebrate it corporately. Right? When the many become one. Okay, another question. How often should a church observe it? How often do we do it? Again, if you've been a part of different churches, you've probably walked through many different practices. We're actually not told in Scripture how often a church should do this. We saw there in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, whenever or as often as you do it. Some churches, of course, practice it every single week. That's great. Some once a quarter. Our common practice here at Grace Roads to observe it the first Sunday of each month. But, but that's not a law. That's not a binding principle. It's just how we uh, have practiced it. Uh, but, but another important question to ask is, what happens when we celebrate it? Like, what happens when we observe the Lord's Supper? I mean, is there like some spiritual or magical thing that happens when we observe communion? Well, you have to keep in mind that just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. And so we say there's nothing magical or mystical about it, which is, of course, very different from the views of some other expressions of communion, like the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, for example. If you don't know, they teach what the technical term is transubstantiation, where when the priest blesses it, uh, the bread and wine literally transform into the body and blood of Jesus, that it confers new grace to the participants. Uh, But we would not hold that position. We believe Scripture is quite clear that communion is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus on the altar for sins we've recently committed and need fresh atoning for. In fact, the author of Hebrews speaks directly against this idea. Hebrews chapter 10, listen to what he writes. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He said, no, this doesn't have to be a re-sacrifice. Why? Because Christ's one sacrifice was perfect. It doesn't need to happen over and over again. So we do this in remembrance of Christ. And so if we're not careful, because it's this thing that we do at church, we see this in other denominations. We, we might be tempted to take ordinances like baptism or the Lord's Supper, which are good and right practices for the church, and kind of start viewing them and turning them into kind of like this ritual which is necessary for our relationship uh, with Christ or salvation. But again, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is not a ritual where we do something for Jesus. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a reminder of what Jesus did for us and what our salvation means. And so in baptism, uh, we're reminded of our union with Christ, something that's already happened because of our faith and repentance in Christ, that, that we are united to him, that we died with him and we were raised to new life in Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made for his people, a people who don't merit salvation, who can't do anything on their own for it. And yet God graciously provides it in the death of his son. Now, with that, to say nothing magical or mystical happens doesn't mean that there's no spiritual benefit for us. Right? We're certainly edified by the Lord's Supper. Right? We're reminded of incredible truths that should encourage us and humble us and renew us and strengthen us in our faith. In fact, and this is so important to catch, but in his letter to the Corinthians, and if you don't know that letter, uh, that church, there's a church in the city, lots of problems in it, and Paul is writing to correct all of these problems. Uh, and, and Paul, in chapter 11, which we've already read from, Paul speaks about divisions that exist in the church and the pride uh, that fuels those divisions. And the way that Paul addresses them is by actually teaching on the Lord's Supper of all things. And it might seem kind of strange, like why does he go to that to address divisions and pride? Well, the reason he does that is because when a church gathers and we observe the Lord's Supper together, we're making some declarations about ourselves. First of all, we're declaring that we are one body. That there's no room for division. That we're all united in the body of Christ. And so we can lay down those divisions, those dividing walls. We're declaring that every single one of us is a sinful person in need of a Savior. There's no room for pride when we look at others, when we look at ourselves. And so Paul says, when you gather together to worship, there's this moment of reflection or examination. He says that in 1 Corinthians 11, and, that, and that's important because it's an opportunity for us when we gather uh, to, to look for any unchecked pride, any unchecked bitterness, any unchecked division or unforgiveness. In fact, the Lord's Supper's been called like a wide net that's cast at the church at the same time. It's cast to catch pride or bitterness that might be in our hearts. Or you can think of it like, like an air filter in your heating system or your car. It catches pollutants in the filth that's present. And you know there's a lot of wear and tear in the life of the church community. And the Lord's Supper is regular maintenance on our hearts. 
We need it to preserve unity and harmony. We're one in Christ, and so we celebrate in Christ together. So all of that to say, we don't hold it as this mystical experience like other churches or denominations might teach, but that doesn't mean it doesn't affect us in very real ways. Now, one of my favorite descriptions of the Lord's Supper is that of a visible sermon. That's what it is. The Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. It's something tangible. It's this thing we see. It's this thing we touch. And it's something we even taste that preaches the gospel to us. And every good gospel-centered sermon does two main things. First of all, it confronts us and it also comforts us. In other words, a gospel-centered sermon will, will point a congregation to their need for salvation, but then it will also lift up Christ as the Savior that they need and can have. It both confronts and it comforts, and that's exactly what the Lord's Supper preaches to us. It is this gospel-centered sermon. It reminds us, first of all, of the seriousness of our sin, right? Sin's so serious that it separates us from a God who's holy. And the only way to find forgiveness and reconciliation is by the the shedding of blood. And so again, it confronts us about the seriousness of, of our sin. So we don't treat it lightly. We don't rush through it. It's meant to confront us. Particularly this morning, if you're here today and you've never recognized the seriousness of your sin. Or your need for forgiveness. I mean, the Lord's Supper is probably not something you observe, but maybe our observation of this morning, let it speak to you of the seriousness of sin. That God is holy and we're not. And again, our sin, your sin has broken that relationship you could have with the holy God, but the cup and the bread, it confronts you today of that reality. So it preaches this sermon and confronts us, and yet it also comforts us, doesn't it? Because it reminds us that, yes, even though our sin is so serious that blood must be shed, blood has been shed. And it's not our blood, but the blood of Jesus. And we certainly need that reminder. I mean, just think back for just a second to the Exodus event in Egypt. Imagine being an Israelite. You're there in your home. Perhaps you have a family. And you hear about this coming plague. And you take it seriously. God's already done some amazing things. He can do what he wants, and he's true to his word. Now the death of the firstborns? Imagine hearing that and feeling that. And so you take every precaution to follow God's instructions perfectly because you don't want to mess it up. Right? You want to kill the lamb the way you're supposed to do it. You want to spread the blood the way you're supposed to. You want to prepare it the way you're supposed to. You want to eat it exactly the way God tells you to do it because you don't want to be wrong. I mean, maybe at least in the back of your mind, even doing all that wondering, did I do enough for God to pass over my home? Maybe clutching and hugging your firstborn. Hopefully not for the last time, but you're just not quite sure. Perhaps you come to the Lord's Supper with similar trepidation. Like you recognize your unworthiness, you recognize your sin, and your failure to live in a way that perfectly honors and glorifies the Lord. And so maybe for you, observing communion or observing the Lord's Supper feels more like grief and fearfulness than joy and happiness. Even though you've trusted in the finished work of Christ. 
If that's you this morning, can I encourage you? You do not live under law, you live under grace. And the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are given as reminders of Christ's perfect work on your behalf. Nothing more needs to be done. The work is finished. In fact, I love what Charles Spurgeon, he said about this to comfort his people in his church late 19th century in in London. This is what he said. So good. He said, in keeping these commandments, talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, he says, there's great reward, but they're not presented to us as matters of servitude. In other words, we're not slaves to them. He says, in baptism, we're made to see the burial of our Lord and are helped to enter into spiritual fellowship with him therein. There is no burdensome ordinance, but a delight. The Lord's own supper is a joyful festival, a feast of fat things, of fat things full of marrow, of wines, and the lees well refined. All is joy and rest about these two ordinances. And enjoying them, we feel that we're not under law, but under grace. And this is what he says to his church. I would not have you come to this table with the same tribbling with which an Israelite ate the Passover. Or stand there as the Israelite did with your loins girt and your staff in your hand, eating in haste and apprehension. He says, nay, but you may sit at ease or even recline to express the rest which you enjoy at the Lord's table and the close communion to which your Redeemer invites you. He has called you his friends. He's honored you to be his table companions, to sit and feast with him without reserve. And Paul says, we're to examine ourselves before observing the Lord's Supper. That's good and that's right. We should do that. We should confess our sin and reflect. But after that, you really can enjoy the elements with ease and gladdened hearts. The true Passover lamb has been sacrificed for you and for me. And he's invited us to be his table companions. And we come with nothing. And that's okay. Jesus provides the feast himself, and it is himself. So even though this sermon has come to its end, let me, let me invite all who've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ to see, to taste, and reflect on that visible sermon that's going to continue in our time this morning. That when you partake of the elements, remember Jesus is your Passover lamb sacrifice in your place and now because of your faith in his finished work you stand justified before God his judgment has passed over you and it's never to return so after I pray if you've trusted in Christ you're welcome to partake of the elements anytime uh, over the next two songs as we sing together can we pray let's pray father we're just again so grateful for the opportunity to gather to after what may be a difficult week for some, Lord, to come together and set our hearts on something as good as you. Father, we're thankful for your word. And again, it's truthfulness, it's, it's trustworthiness. Lord, how it points us to ultimately your son from beginning to end. Lord, how we were in need of a sacrifice, that we were in need of Uh, of the shed blood of something to be forgiven. And you and your goodness and your grace provide that perfect sacrificial lamb in your son. Lord, that now by our faith and the finished work of Christ, your judgment has passed over us. And Father, as we celebrate that this morning, God, I pray that you remind us of those truths. 
Lord, help us be honest with ourselves as we examine ourselves. Lord, I pray, God, your spirit would do a great work in our hearts to find those things in our heart that need to be confessed and repented of. But Lord, as we're confronted this morning, would you also comfort us? Lord, remind us that we're one. There's no room for division. There's no room for pride. That we celebrate this together. So, Father, again, help us examine ourselves, help us confess, but help us rejoice as well. Father, I pray this morning, if there's someone who doesn't know you, who's not trusted in you, God, would you draw them to yourself and grant them repentance today? Lord, that they might taste and see that you are good. That they might join us at the table. That they might be a table companion of yours and ours. Father, we love you. and We're so thankful for all you've done for us in Christ. We pray for your blessing as we continue in worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.